0: What the world sees as weak and foolish, we cling to and proclaim He is our strength, the crucified Messiah, buried and risen from the dead. He is, he is our God. And the Bible is, is His Word. I want you to open your copy of God's Word to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. You remember how I told you last week that according to Psalm 139 God has the number of your days. Well, well today we're going to get a very graphic Old Testament illustration of that very truth in in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is two things. It it's personal instruction for God's people, and it's also prophetic insight about God's predetermined plan for the ages. The, the book of Daniel sets the prophetic timeline for, for all of the Bible, but it also answers questions, questions like, what do I do whenever the, the godless prevail, and how should a believer respond to, to persecution, and does God really care? the the world around me, around me seems to be growing more and more hostile. Um, questions like, where is God when His people suffer and, and are overtaken? Or, or where is He at whenever the Canadian government puts a chain-link fence around your church in Edmonton, Canada? Will He deliver people like that? Uh, how will He deliver them? Is it God's plan to always deliver and deliver in specific ways? The book of Daniel answers those types of questions, and it's divided in two parts, uh, chapters 1 through 6, and then chapters 7 through, through 12. Chapter 1 through 6 is the, the section we're in. It's the historical narrative. It's telling the story of God's protection and deliverance of four Hebrew youths, and, and hence His people, in a very pagan, pagan society. And then the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 10, which we'll get to, are prophetic visions visions that God gives to Daniel to, to tell us what is coming in, in the future, and more specifically, when the Messiah would come the first and when he will come the second time and eventually setting up his, his earthly kingdom. And Daniel purposely structures it that, that way with those two halves because he wants you to, to learn the lessons of chapters 1 through 6 because you're going to need to apply them whenever the days of chapters 7 through 12 come. We've been over that before. It's, I gave you that in the introduction. But I wonder, have you noticed something as we've been walking through chapters 1 through 6 in the first half of the book? Have you picked up on the fact that the lessons there repeat themselves? After the introduction of chapter 1, which tells us how these children of Judah even end up in Babylon, chapters 2 through 7 uh, are written parallel to each other. And they reinforce the themes. The themes repeat themselves. Theologians uh, call this a a chiasm, which is a a writing tool. You might think of it like a a literary Big Mac. Um, You know a Big Mac, two off-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. It tells you how powerful marketing is, if I can still recite that ditty from my, my childhood. But you remember, a Big Mac is, is the same on the top half as it is on the bottom, and right in the middle, it's got that strange bun that's not really a bun. It's, it's got the uh, a blank half on the top and, and the bottom. A chiasm is the same. So chapter 2 of Daniel and chapter 7 are the same, and then chapters 3 and 6 are the same, and then chapters 4 and 5 are back-to-back, back, and they're also the same, and so... In chapter 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four kingdoms. And then in chapter 7, Daniel has vision of four beasts that are four worldly kingdoms, and they match for telling world history. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 are how God delivers His faithful. So in chapter 3, you have the three Hebrew youths delivered from a fiery furnace. And then chapter 6, which is coming next week, you have Daniel, elderly Daniel, delivered from the lion's den. And then, chapter 4 and 5, right in the middle, like the center bun, you have the same event with the same theme, a different event with the same theme placed back to back. Chapter 4, God humbles the proud king Nebuchadnezzar who repents. He turns up. In chapter 5, which we'll look at today, God humbles the proud king Belshazzar and he turns down. He's removed. And the chiastic theme of the first half of the book is to tell us where Daniel is going in the second half. Long before Daniel ever tells us about the the visions of the future and that God raises up kings and, and takes them down, he proves it to us. And long before he tells us about the future earthly kings that will dominate the earth and persecute his people, he tells us, he shows us how he'll deliver his faithful ones that trust in him. And if God could do those things for Daniel and his friends, then he'll do it for you, and will do it for his people in the future, even when the Antichrist, the great king of the earth, comes with significant sway before the end. The theme of chapter 5 is the same as chapter 4, so you like have a sequel theme going on here. But there's an added twist. And the key verse of Daniel 5 is in verse 22. Look at verse 22. You can get a run at it at verse, verse 21. Daniel is reciting history to Belshazzar here. He says, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, he was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whomever he wishes. That should sound familiar from Daniel 4 because it is. But here's the twist. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. So the lesson from the lives of both of these kings is God is in charge and He rules over the kings and kingdoms of the earth, giving giving them to whomever He wishes. And secondarily, God humbles the proud. The twist is that humbling can come one of two ways. God can humble you unto repentance, like with Nebuchadnezzar, Or God can humble you in judgment, like with Belshazzar. And let me just give you the cliff notes. You want to be humbled unto repentance. You don't want to be humbled in judgment. And we've already been told that, that, that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. And here's another example of that. The difference is repentance doesn't come. Judgment does. It comes very quickly. In fact, in one night. And the purpose of that. In chapter 5, is to remind you not to trifle with the grace of God or mess around with His mercy. Just because God held out mercy to you before doesn't mean that He'll do that again. There is a limit to His long-suffering nature. It's much greater than ours. But at some point, it runs out. It's also a reminder to Israel... And us, that when governmental rulers come, including the last king, foretold in Daniel 7 through 12, and it looks like their power is limitless and that no one will be able to touch them, God is telling you in Israel in chapter 5 that with the flick of his finger, he can remove a king and a kingdom and it will fall and be no more. And that's the point and purpose of Daniel 5. You can glean other morals off the surface or look in the corners of the fields like be bold in the face of evil men or getting drunk drunk will lead you to do stupid things. But but the main harvest from chapter 5 is comfort in God's rule over what is coming and the fear of the Lord if He's coming for you. Daniel 5 is a good reminder that That when you look around today and you think people are getting away with things because nothing seems to be happening to them, that is a foolish thought. They're not getting away with anything. God is able to strike like a lightning bolt, just like he can give 12 months of mercy before moving, like with Nebuchadnezzar. You remember chapter 4 says there's a watcher in heaven. Chapter 5 says that that watcher has a set of scales. So you and I and all men are being watched and weighed. We said God puts pride out the pastor in chapter 4. Well, he takes up interior decorating in chapter 5. And the story centers around a feast that sparks several speeches in aftermath. It's the story of Belshazzar the king. You've probably heard it before, that throws a bravado banquet and directly challenges God almost 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar's humbling. And it has four scenes. Verses 1 through 6 is the scene of the feast this debaucherous feast in his palace, and then verses 7 through 12 is the seeking of the interpretation, and then verses 13 to 29, the bulk of the, of the chapter is Daniel's speech to, to Belshazzar, and then finally God's fulfillment, the last two verses of the chapter, very short. and So you've got a brazen feast, a bony finger, a forgotten forecaster, and then a final fulfillment. We'll, we'll call it the the second lesson that the Most High rules over the kings of, of the earth, or the Most High rules over the kings of the earth, the sequel. <laughs> and here's how the, the chapter lays out the feast, and then the finger and the forecaster, then the, a very familiar message, and then a final judgment that comes at the, the very end. Let me show you the first one here. Here's the brazen feast that sets up the whole thing. There was immorality, a lot of drunkenness, and that ends with a blasphemy challenge. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of Daniel 5. It says, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, if you've been reading along in Daniel, you're abruptly introduced to a new king of Babylon, and you're not really told what happened to the old one, or how this one even even gets here, so we need to fill in some gaps. And King Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years. And before he died, um, there was a successor that was, that was named. His son, Evil Merodach, uh, ruled for only two years, and he ruled about like his name. Um, would you like to be called uh, Evil uh, Merodach? He was assassinated by uh, Neraglasser, who ruled for four years. And Neraglasser was succeeded by his son, Labashai Marduk. He was really young. He only lasted two months. And then he was assassinated by a group of collaborators. Uh, collaborators, And then they put their own king, Nabonidus, in, in place. And Nabonidus marries Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And they have a son named Belshazzar. And he reigns for 14 years in Babylon. 539 until 539 B.C., and you are reading the last day of this man's life on earth. How would you live if you knew this was the last day you had on earth? Would you throw a drunken party, or would you get right with God? Um, Well, Belshazzar doesn't know that his last day on earth. And by the way, you don't either. Interestingly, for a long time, historians thought Belshazzar never did live. The only place that the name Belshazzar was found was in the Bible until the the 19th century, and liberal scholars had a heyday with that. there 's proof that that here, uh, you know, Daniel is making up fictitious characters, and yet what historians didn't know for 2,500 years, the Bible recorded accurately right here. And in the the mid 1800s, archaeologists discovered five clay uh, cylinders called the the Nabonidus uh, cylinders or Chronicles, and that described the events of his reign. It was a cylinder with writing all the way around it. And guess who his firstborn son was? Belshazzar. And he's recorded in Nabonidus' annals as the last king of Babylon. Just a little side note, never doubt the Bible or box with God. The Bible is an anvil, as they say, that has worn out many hammers. And your arms are way too short to even think about landing a blow on the Lord of Heaven. Well, Nabonidus has this son, and because of geopolitical changes uh, in the region, Persia is rising, Nabonidus goes to establish a palace somewhere else, about 500 miles away in Arabia, where he rules for the majority of his 17 years, and he leaves Belshazzar in charge, the crown prince, to rule over Babylon, just as Daniel described... And Daniel knows this detail with absolute historical clarity because it's a first-hand eyewitness report. And the first event that he describes is a debaucherous party hosted by a de facto king. Now, Now, don't miss this. This king has ruled for 14 years, and Daniel has been there for all 14 years. And the only thing that Daniel records about this king is the last day of his life because it's an important day. And the king has a huge banquet, And he brings thousands in. And this type of burlesque event was quite common in pagan monarchies. You've read about one in the Bible with Queen Esther. Xerxes had one of these feasts that lasted 180 days in Esther chapter 1. Alexander the Great had over 10,000 guests at his marriage feast. And Belshazzar has one of these feasts. And yet the backdrop is very interesting. Just two days before this feast is called, the Babylonians met the Persian army uh, about 50 miles north, and Nabonidus, is, Belshazzar's father, is, is defeated. And rather than follow him, he, he flees, he retreats, and the Persians, rather than following Nabonidus, they come to Babylon and put Babylon under siege. And so they're camped outside the double walls that were supposed to be impenetrable. And so this feast is happening with a mortal enemy at the gates, and Belshazzar calls a drunken party to celebrate Babylon's power. You talk about insolent pride. And it also coincided with a celebration of an annual festival. Look at you would at verse 2. Here's the background in that one word, Belshazzar the king. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Verse 2 says he he literally commanded while drunk. Never a good idea, both of those, getting drunk or commanding while you you get that way. And he tells him to bring in the, the silver goblets and and the golden bowls that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem 70 years earlier. Belshazzar brings them into his drunken bash and uses them to toast pagan gods. And Ezra chapter 1 tells us that there were over 5,400 vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls, and 1,000 articles. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar places them in the temple of of his God, and and Belshazzar says, go get them and and bring them in. These war trophies from the past now become tools of blasphemy directed at the Lord. Look look at verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, It went something like this. As the night goes on, after filling himself with, with food and wine, Belshazzar's thinking about the Medes and the Persians outside of the gate, unable to get in, and he decides to go on a walk, take everybody on a walk down Babylon's memory lane. And so he reminisces about the days of Babylon's strength. You remember whenever we sieged Jerusalem? We conquered that city and no one could stop us, not even the puny god of Judah, the one that supposedly humbled the great king Nebuchadnezzar. Bring forth the golden cups and bowls from, from his temple and we'll celebrate from them, for we are Babylon. That's the idea here. And Belshazzar commits a desecration of holy things. This was just not done, not, not even with pagans. You remember Nebuchadnezzar was a proud, but he was a respectful pagan. And Belshazzar is an insolent scoffer. And there's a difference between being a fool in Proverbs and being a mocker. There's a big difference between the two. Belshazzar could care less, and he uses all of these for sacrilege. Sidney Gerdanus said he wants to demonstrate to his people that Israel's God is insignificant and worthless. They will drink from his holy vessels. At this party, they will trample the honor of Israel's God. They'll spit in God's face and get away with it. It's a direct challenge, and everybody in the party does it. Verse 4 says, And the kings and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Everybody's participating, which is why it's not just the end of Belshazzar, but it's the end of Babylon, the kingdom as well. They challenge the God of heaven to defend his honor. And to add insult to injury, they raised the vessels of God's house to drink to the Babylonian gods. Now, those of you who know your Bible, if God punished an Israelite named Uzzah in Samuel, 2 Samuel 6, who carelessly touched his holy ark whenever it was, was wobbling and almost fell off the cart, how do you think he's going to respond to an insolent, pagan Gentile who mocks him while praising dead idols. You don't have to wait long for the answer. It comes in in verse 5. Look if you would at verse 5. Here is God's immediate answer. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing the opposite of the lampstand on the the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the, the back of the hand that did the writing. Belshazzar wanted to to show off, but his actions caused God to show up. And you can do that. And with the wine still in his mouth, dripping from the Lord's golden cup, a hand suddenly appears and, and everything comes to a screeching halt. There was no need for coffee to sober up for Belshazzar and his guests. The scene must have been a shocking one. Can you imagine this? Just... Thousands of people and the the roar of laughter and the smell of wine and all kinds of other things that I won't describe to you going on and everyone partying and, and there's music echoing through the hall and the mockery is flowing and it builds to this crescendo how strong and great we are and right in the middle of the great wall opposite the king, a bodiless hand appears. And it begins to slowly write on a white plaster wall in front of a great lampstand for all to see. I say it's a bony finger because it's writing his death certificate. He just can't read it yet. Todd Dykstra said eventually all heads turned to see it. The drinking stopped, the singing stopped, and the room, which had been drowned with noise, became deathly silent. The accuracy of Daniel is, actually the detail is just breathtaking. In 1899, not only does Daniel tell us about Belshazzar, but in 1899, archaeologists excavated this very chamber, the, the, the Palace of Babylon. And right next to the king's seat, where, where he would have, been, would have been placed, they found a large plaster wall covered with white gypsum just as Daniel describes here. And on this wall, Belshazzar's autopsy appeared before he even dies. And when the hand appeared, the plaster was not the only thing that was white. Look, if you would, at verse 6. It says, Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Literally, he was white as a ghost, as we would say. The text describes what happens in his body. His knees are weak. They, be, they begin to knock together. It's a symptom of extreme panic. Um, Stephen Miller says the, uh, the, the joints of his loins were loose, meaning his, his hip joints. He, he, just, he wants to collapse. He buckles in, in fear. But it's interesting, the, the knots of his loins were loosened. That's, that's what it says in the literal, uh, in the original language. It's also a euphemism. The knots of his loins were loosed, uh, were loosed. It's a euphemism meaning that he wet his pants. In the words of the great theologian Fred Sanford, he had the big one right here. <laughs> <laughs> so much for the mighty mocking king of Babylon, and so much will be for all of the puny humans that mock the Lord and shake their fist in His face. You ever been that afraid? I don't mean afraid of like adrenaline after you almost get in a wreck or you're up on a ladder and you almost fall off. I'm, I'm talking about overcome with fear of the Lord. I can remember a moment in my life after becoming a Christian whenever I was considering and just wrestling as we would, we would call it with, with whether to do something or, or not and it wasn't the right thing to do. God to give me plenty of time and information to make the right decision. I just wouldn't let the idea go. I'd keep coming. I even pray about it, and I didn't embrace it, but I I wouldn't run from it either. I remember a moment in prayer and I was wrestling through that, where God's patience I, I think ran out, and in a moment He struck me with such a petrifying awareness of who He is. I mean, it was like He was right there, and He saw me, and I saw Him. I can still remember it. And in that moment, I, I felt like the blood drained out of my body. I um, felt weak. And ever since then, any time a thought of temptation crosses my mind, a touch of that feeling comes, and, and I run to the Lord. Well, that's what's happening with Belshazzar, but, but he doesn't run to the Lord. He runs to his feckless advisors. If you would at verse 7 fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Belshazzar doesn't have any of that. Verse 7, the king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners, and the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a a necklace of gold around his, his neck and have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. Here's his panicked offer. Belshazzar doesn't think he screams. He he calls out for the enchanters. It's a participle, meaning he he just continually calls out, and he does it loudly. He he is screaming for the wise men from the the feast, with everybody still there. You ever heard the statement, um, the definition of stupidity is trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? May I present to you Exhibit A right here. Unsaved people often turn everywhere else except where they should, and they'll turn back to the same place over and over and over, even though it got them nowhere the first time. And the result is always more pain and anxiety. If you at verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. And we're not surprised by that by this time in Daniel the king promises a reward, and they give him nothing, just like every time before. And you might not want to be too hard on them, because Todd Dykstra points out that the, the message was written in Aramaic, and it would be, contain only three words, and it would not have had any vowels in it, just like Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. So it wouldn't have been that easy to interpret, and it would have been written left to right, this way, rather than this way. And while the wise men offer nothing, this this passage does give us something of great value. It it actually confirms, again, the accuracy of of Daniel, the historical accuracy of Daniel. Did you notice what the king promised them after the purple and the the gold chain? He promised them that you could be the third ruler in the kingdom. You know why he says that? Because that's the next slot that, that is available. Nabonidus was first, Belshazzar was in second place, and then the third ruler is there just like Daniel foretells. But frankly when you think about it this is not a very good this is not a very good deal. It's not a very good I- incentive with the Persians at the gates and God's finger writing on the wall. Who wants to be king at that point, right? And so the wise men, unable to read the words and interpret the message, the king goes back to pale and weak, verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. That is, until someone remembers Daniel, the forgotten prophet. If you would, at verse 10. The queen enters the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen, uh, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the, the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Finally, somebody with sense shows up and it's Belshazzar's mother. You should always listen to your mother. They know way more than you do. And this is likely King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Neutarchus, who was married to Nabonidus. If it's his grandmother, then, then it was Amethyst, the one that Nebuchadnezzar built the hanging gardens of Babylon for. And in the ancient world, the, the queen mother had, had a lot of, of pulls. She had a lot of power. It's evidenced by the fact that she just walks right into the banquet and addresses the king. He just didn't do that. But she has firsthand knowledge of Daniel, Information Belshazzar has forgotten. Now, now don't miss the irony here. Belshazzar, the mighty king of Babylon, has been mocking the God of Israel. And the followers of the gods of Babylon can't give him any answers. And so she says, call on a follower of the very God that you're mocking. And did you notice that his name... When they're talking about Daniel here, is Daniel not Belteshazzar? He uses his Hebrew name. Do you remember what the name Daniel means? God is my judge. That's literally what Daniel means. So call on God who is my judge to come and tell you what the judgment finger wrote on the wall. He will know. And so they summoned him. And then you have this very familiar message given in verse 13, verse 13. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah who, who my father, the king, brought from Judah? Daniel is now in his 80s. He's, a, he's an older man. And you can tell from Belshazzar's response to him here, he doesn't know Daniel personally, and That's understandable. Twenty-three years since Nebuchadnezzar um, has went through this situation described here. New king comes in. New kings come in, just like the changing of presidential cabinets. uh, Wise men come and go. The ones with political favor come in, and the ones that don't are ushered out. And so Daniel's part of that. He's forgotten. But did you hear the disdain that Belshazzar has for him? Even though he's afraid, he, he's not afraid of God. He says, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from, from Judah? He reminds Daniel, don't forget what my father did. Don't forget who you're in front of. The son, the grandson in this case. He's afraid, but... Just like the men of Revelation, whenever the tribulation period comes, they'll hide under rocks, cry for the rocks to fall on them, but it says they'll curse the God of heaven. Did you know judgment is not enough to convert you? You can be afraid of what's coming, and you should be afraid of what's coming, but only the Spirit of God can give you new life and a new heart. Verse 14 says, I've heard the spirit of the gods is in you, and not that he is in you, like the mother said. And in verse 16, now if you're able, he says to Daniel, questioning Daniel's ability. It's mocking disdain. Here's a proud man, even though God gave him a pair of royal depends, he is still mocking the Lord. I mean, just think about how humiliating and he offers him a large sum of money and positions it before him and offers him a position in the kingdom if he can interpret it. Look at verse 16. But I personally have heard about you and you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you're able, read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me. And you'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and You'll have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel's answer comes in verse 17. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. It's going to happen in just a few verses. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make known the interpretation. Daniel says, keep your crown and your money, but I'll tell you what it means. And then he launches into a history lesson. He gives him a recap of chapter 4. Look at verse 18. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled... But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed, removed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. Daniel says, you want to take a walk down Babylon's memory lane? Let me tell you the most important one you need to remember. Here's a history lesson. The God of Israel sets up kings and he takes them down. And he hates pride. And he did that to your grandfather. And he says, if you want to talk about your grandfather, he knew this because God taught it to him. And then he pivots to a history lesson. Look at verse 22. Or a theology lesson, I should say. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The you is emphatic, but you, Belshazzar, in contrast, you, in contrast to your grandfather, you have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all of this. And you have raised yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the blood is starting to drain again, and it should. Daniel recounts for the king not only the wicked pride in his heart, but then the actions that came from this elevated heart. Verse 23. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking the wine from them, and you praise the gods of silver, gold, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. They're worthless. They're deaf, dumb, and blind. But the God in whose hand... Are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified? He specifically tells Belshazzar how he's challenged God. You had the goblets of his temple brought, you drank from them, you praised the gods of silver and gold, and you didn't honor the God who holds your life in his hand. You have iniquity in your heart. And you've committed transgression, you you stepped over the line by praising false gods, and then you've sinned by omission, by, by failing to give God thanks. The three descriptions of, of the human condition, iniquity, transgression, and sin. He gives him a theology lesson of Romans 1 before it ever comes, before it's ever written. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but were but they became futile in, the, in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. See the contrast in what Daniel says to Belshazzar? You've praised and worshipped gods that are not gods. They can't hear. They can't do anything. And you mock the one and disregarded the true God who holds your life in his hands. What a foolish thing to do. And he knew this. And it's a foolish thing for you to do that as well. The Bible says that every human being has a witness in creation. There's something bigger than them, and there's a God, there's a creator. And even more specific, you've been blessed because you probably had the Bible preached to you before, so you know... What a foolish thing to do to turn to other things and disregard the God that holds your life in His hands and gives you life and breath. What a foolish thing to have iniquity in your heart, to transgress by turning elsewhere, and then then not even give the one who created you thanks. And people do it all the time. They turn to the empty wells of secularism and feminism and humanism, and they disregard the very God who holds their... Their life in his hands. Both of these kings were proud, and both of these kings were humbled. But Belshazzar refused to humble himself before, before God, even though he knew all that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You say, how does he know? I mean, I mean is this like he, he read it, somebody told him about it, so he's unsure of whether this actually took place? No. We know how old Belshazzar is, so Belshazzar was alive whenever this happened. To Nebuchadnezzar. And he observed and he even read the letter. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's last act is to write his salvation testimony. And Belshazzar had that testimony about God, but he disregarded it. And now. He is not only purposely defying the Lord, but desecrating the holy things from the temple. And so God responds. And here's the interpreted omen, verse 25. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tikiel, you The inscription of the messenger, mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tikiel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient you, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persian. Each of these Aramaic verbs are in the perfect tense, indicating that they've already been decided by God and they cannot be changed. The, the four words literally, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. The first word referring to a reckoning, Tikal, the... You've come up short. You've been weighed in the balance. You're a spiritual lightweight. And the last word means to break in two, to divide. Euphorosim. Did you notice that Daniel changes the word between what was written on the wall and his interpretation? Verse 25, he uses the plural, parasan, And then the singular, when he gives interpretation, verse 28, perez. Because it's a play on word. Remember, there, there are no vowels And the word Perez contains the exact same consonants as Persia. And so God's not just saying your kingdom will be divided up, but your kingdom will be divided up and given to the Persians. That's exactly what happens. So you have the final judgment that comes. Daniel's exaltation and Babylon's elimination. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the, the kingdom. The shortest third-in-command stint ever, probably. Now, the very thing that God writes he brings to pass, Belshazzar rewards Daniel, and God rewards Belshazzar. That night, the city fell. And Belshazzar was executed a few hours later. Daniel just tells us that it happened because that's really what he's concerned about. This is how God removed this king, proud king. And it wasn't repentance. It was judgment. Daniel doesn't give us a lot of details, but those historical records, the, the Nabonidus Chronicles, actually do. They tell us, and the historians tell us exactly what happened. This banquet was held on October 11th in 1539, and Babylon falls on October the 12th. And the Greek historian Herodotus gives a very fascinating detail of the siege. He says the walls were surrounding the city, were formidable. There are two sets of, of walls, double walls, that were 17 miles around the city. 17 miles of walls, two of them, and the Euphrates River is running right under the wall, right through the city, which is why they're not concerned about a siege, because they have water. And he tells us that the Persians placed their forces at the gates, and and then as a diversion, they did that, and then they send a smaller force outside of the city, next to the river where there was a low-lying marshy area, and they dig a channel, from the Euphrates to this marshy area, and they diverted the water flow. And so this marsh turns into a lake. And with that diversion of water for a limited time, the Euphrates River drops to about thigh height. So a small Persian force was able to march under the walls of Babylon in the riverbed into the city and unlock the gate and let the army in. Now, if you're a curious mind, or you have some military acumen, you're probably wondering, okay, that makes sense, but how did they just get in, even if it's a small recon force? I mean, walls that were defended and closely watched, I mean, even though the water's down, were there not archers on the wall or somebody that saw them coming in? Where were the defenses? Well, there would have been somebody on the wall. But you see, there was a drunken feast going on that night. And it was so large, everyone went, thinking that no one can penetrate the walls of Babylon and we're safe inside. And when the soldiers entered, they sang songs like they were part of the drunken party. And they opened the gates and they entered the palace and they found the king and they executed him that very night just as God foretold. Look, if you would, at verse 31, 30 and 31. The same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62, and we'll meet him next week. The moral of this story is Belshazzar knew what Nebuchadnezzar had experienced, and he should have learned from that. And that experience, that witness, that salvation testimony was, a, was an opportunity for Belshazzar to humble himself. But he wasn't just a fool. He was a mocker. He refused. And because of that, his heart was hardened beyond repentance. And so the obvious question is, are you Nebuchadnezzar or are you Belshazzar if you're an unbeliever? Are you like Belshazzar and have been given a record of God's testimony in front of you, and yet you pay no heed? In fact, you you mock it? If you do, you risk being hardened. Don't think because the Bible says that God is compassionate and forgiving sins of thousands. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. He is all of those things. But don't forget the second half of that self-revelation, who by no means will allow the guilty to go unpunished. I wouldn't mock him and risk being hardened. God will fulfill his word. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 21, eight declared this very day, the end of Babylon. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground, o, threshing, o threshed people, and my afflicted of the threshing floor. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. And there's coming another day when Israel is going to be persecuted. when the last king comes. And when that last king comes, it's going to seem like he has all power and no one's going to be able to stop him and the whole world's going to be following after him and it's going to seem hopeless. And in that day, you remember Daniel 5. The flick of his finger, the Lord will remove that king and Jesus Christ will return and reign. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your word tells us of your amazing grace and your incomprehensible mercy that while we were rebels and running from you and and not just indifferent, we, we don't want you. The one who created us, you came to us, Undeserved, and you lavish us with your merciful forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and you, you offer the gospel to us by faith alone. Nothing that we need to do ourselves. All has been done for us. And the way that we receive that is, is in humble repentance by faith. And then you also tell us, Lord, that there's coming a day when judgment's coming. And... Um, the gospel being offered now, I pray people will, will be like Nebuchadnezzar and not Belshazzar. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.